This is your Read Beat host, Steve Tarter. I want to take a few minutes to share a few interview segments with you from the year 2023. It was a year when we learned about Look Magazine with author Andrew Yarrow and why Look is not as well remembered as Life, a magazine that outsold for six years in the 1960s. Steve, um, you know, uh, Time Inc. continued under in various forms on down to the present and has reissued life special issues, these so-called bookazines that, as you say, you see in the supermarket or drugstore checkout lines, you know, on the Titanic or Queen Elizabeth or the Rolling Stones or whatever, um, basically recycling old content. But another part of the problem is look has not yet been digitized. No, really? Life, oh. life was digitized. Um, lots and lots of publications, historical publications in America have been digitized the the times the wall street journal the washington post the la times all sorts of newspapers and you know it's a real real shame um yarrow mentioned bookazines and that's something samir husney talked about here's mr magazine discussing the latest magazine trend word of bookazines these days bookazines uh, <laughs> because we are seeing uh, more of those uh, specials and one-shot uh, magazines uh, flooding the marketplace. Uh, and 2023, at least, at least 1,000 of titles hit the marketplace, uh, dealing from every topic you can imagine and you cannot imagine. Right. The, uh, uh, of course, Taylor Swift was the <laughs> number one. I mean, there was more magazines about Taylor Swift uh, I think Jesus was running second uh, <laughs> uh, because of the holidays, of course. Uh, but uh, you name it. I mean, from cures for inflammations to like recipes that you can do in 10 minutes or less or uh, uh, or everything you ever wanted to know about Journey, uh, the musical band, or about um, BTS or... Uh, you name it. I mean, the, the our magazine market have become uh, what, what is referred to as a bookazines. 2023 was also a time when Eddie Muller talked about how he got to be the czar of noir, writing books, hosting film noir on TV, TMC, and around at festivals all around the world. But but I'll tell you, you know, having also, you know, I don't have kids of my own, so I'm going to you know, leave the, the lessons at the door here. But um, I have spoken at many, many schools of all uh, grades, right? From from elementary school, honestly, and after school clubs and everything, all the way up to universities. And uh, it, it is, that's the conclusion I came to. It, it's, it needs to be young because when, when mm -hmm. kids start to become teenagers, that that's when all the defense mechanisms start going into place and they you know they start trying to fit in and and when they're younger than that they just like what they like and right. the stuff that's going to matter to them you know somebody once said to me the secret to happiness is if you can do in your adult life what made you happy when you were 6 years old and and while that sounds like it has a lot of irresponsibility built into it 
I think what they meant was if you like drawing pictures when you're six years old, you're going to be happy if you're drawing pictures when you're 50 years old. And, uh, you know, kids who it sounds very silly, but I actually believe it's completely true. And, you know, I, I made books when I was a kid. I actually drew but like comic books and things and told stories and bound them and took them to school. And, you know, here's my report and all that stuff. That was what I loved to do. Muller also makes a point of finding and restoring film art, talking about his latest efforts. Absolutely. I don't I don't think I will ever run out of finding things to restore. And either, I mean, less so probably um, with movies made in Hollywood. Um, in that case, all we really hunt for are independently made films that were released through the studios, but not owned by the studios. That's that's sort of where we specialize because uh, they're called orphans. And just for an example, uh, you know, Dick Powell made a movie in 1950 called Cry Danger that was his own production. Uh, he talked a couple of Nebraska businessmen out of some money so he could make a film independently because he wanted to own it. He didn't want to, you know, he wanted the profit that came from owning the film. And he made distribution deals with uh, RKO to distribute it and everything, but those all have terms. And when the terms are up, you know, the, 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 the films aren't necessarily protected. And after a while, you know, Dick Powell passed away. Who knows where the rights went to the film and all this kind of stuff. So it becomes a detective story where you have to hunt it down, see who has it, convince them that they don't own it, and then restore the film and get it back in circulation. And we, we've done that numerous times. Uh, right. But now, but now I find that it, it, in searching for films, you often end up finding the original elements in film vaults overseas. And in my travels to do this stuff, um, I've gotten quite a wonderful education in noir elsewhere, right? And, and that there are these films that are not in English, but they are very much examples of film noir. And, and this has become something of, uh, uh, you know, my, my new mission is to restore as many of these foreign language examples of noir as possible. We've, we've had great luck with Argentina. I have a wonderful colleague there, Fernando Martin Pena, who has steered me to a number of great films, you know, that are 70, 75 years old now, um, that really haven't been seen outside of Argentina. And, and they're important, significant movies. Alvin Hall, the author of Driving Green Book, recalled an incident that he recounted in his book, detailing what African-Americans had to do when traveling in the United States. Yeah. The Green Book was the directory that African-Americans could use to find places they could stop on the road without running into trouble. Exactly. Steve, that story was told by Hezekiah Jackson, who is part of the foot soldiers of uh, Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, that story stays with me there are about four others that I live with day to day because I can't quite shake the feelings that that story evoked when I see certain incidents today. So what had happened in that story was that uh, his mother's aunt Beatty had died and she was a domestic who lived in Detroit. And so they, as many black people did during that period of time, traveled up for her funeral. 
Beanie's husband didn't have a car, so he asked Hezekiah's father to drive to the employer's house to pick up Beanie's final paycheck. And they pulled up in this neighborhood where everything was beautiful. Hezekiah tells the story that he thought he was like in a fantasy or some television <laughs> show. And as they pulled up to the house, uh, the police appeared out of nowhere mm. and they start to challenge his father, calling his father boy and saying, you know, do you work for some rich white folk? Where do you get this nice car? In the black communities, as in the one where I was raised, you did not disrespect your elders in that way. You were taught that your father, your uncle were authority figures. So for these kids to hear their father spoken about that way was very traumatic. And their mother had their eyes, had her eyes locked on them looking in the rear view mirror and she was telling them to be quiet. But his brother said, did you see that white man call daddy boy? That statement along, Steve, still mm -hmm. makes me think of all the collateral damage that happens in these situations even today. It's not just about this one person being stopped or being beaten or being uh, harassed on the road. It's about all the people who see this, mm -hmm. who take this information in and how does it affect their behavior. So sometimes when I hear stories about black men running from police or and being shot or killed by the police, I can imagine it's part of the collateral damage of seeing all of these things where black people are treated badly by police. But people don't think of it that way. But that's what I'm left with from that story. That's a powerful story. And I was so happy that Hezekiah shared it with us. Gloria Dickey, an environmental reporter, wrote Eight Bears, chronicling the plight of the eight remaining types of bears that are left on the globe. Yeah, I think for me, like with this book, you know, each bear kind of represented a different environmental issue that was that was facing the world. So with sloth bears, yeah, it's, you know, population growth and habitat loss pushing these bears into conflict, climate change with the spectacled bear in the Andes and the polar bear in the Arctic. And then you have the wildlife trafficking issue in traditional medicine with um, moon bears or Asiatic black bears in, in Asia as well. So each kind of each bear can kind of act as a lens through which we can view, I guess, a different you know issue or crisis point in, in the natural world. We interviewed Mark Dewitziak twice in 2023, once on the subject of the TV show Kolchak the Night Stalker with Darren McGavin, the other about his book on the very misunderstood Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> um, so uh, Poe is a fellow who is just um, swamped by mystery, myth, and misconception and misinformation. A bunch of M's associate themselves with Poe. And it's it's really staggering uh, how we have constructed almost a uh, funhouse mirror reflection of who he actually was. So, um, yes, the, the subtitle is reversed from what you normally would see, because most books we say the life and death of. Mm -hmm. I reversed it intentionally because um, you do start with the death. But it, it also because this guy also had one of the greatest afterlives of any author. Um, Poe emerges triumphant. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, they, they, this guy dies in 1849 at the age of 40. You know, they bury him the next day in a small Presbyterian cemetery in Baltimore on a cold, windy day. The next day, he's buried again 
figuratively because somebody he thought was a friend publishes an obituary of him. And what Poe didn't realize was that this guy was nursing grudges against him. And he uh, writes a, an obituary, which is uh, as scurrilous a piece of writing as anybody has ever done. He accuses Poe of everything under the sun and presents him as a completely immoral man. The damage to Poe's reputation that that obituary did has not been undone to today. Hmm. Uh, so... That's why I say, so he's buried under this mountain of misinformation. He's literally buried. And then in 1875, they dug him up and they buried him again because they wanted to put him in a better place in the cemetery. They wanted to put a nice monument in the front part of the cemetery and there was no room where he was buried. So so this guy keeps getting buried. But, you know, if you know anything about an Edgar Allan Poe short story, you know one thing, is nothing stays buried in Poe. Uh, and, and that's true of Poe's life is that, Poe is today probably the most recognized, best read American author. Um, the only writer who's American writer who's is who's probably as well recognized as Mark Twain. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think Twain is as well read anymore as Poe is. I think Poe is actually is certainly in our country because Poe is curriculum. While Twain is dropped out of curriculum for a lot of schools, everybody gets Edgar Allan Poe. You got Edgar Allan Poe when you were in school. I got him. My my father got him in the depths of the Depression in the 1930s when he was in high school. You know, everybody gets Poe. Finally, J.P. Talat talked about the book that he wrote on how Hollywood learned to sell sci-fi cinema. And uh, that was simply the, you know, the, the case uh, that we weren't quite sure what we were selling. Uh, when we went to sell science fiction cinema in the 1950s. And uh, in, that, in, in it, that era, Jay, in that era, didn't television kind of take science fiction to the kids? And that, and that was the other issue. Uh, do you want to associate yourself with television? Uh, and as you probably know, and I'm sure many listeners uh, know, um, uh, the movie industry and the television industry initially did not get along so very well. Uh, although one of the interesting... <laughs> put it mildly. <laughs> to put it mildly, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, but one of the interesting things here is, is that uh, uh, the selling of something like science fiction one winds up bringing those two forms closer together. Because what the movie industry finds is that television becomes the best way of selling science fiction. Right. And so you, by the, by the mid-1950s, uh, by 1956, let's say, you, you really can't sell uh, one of your films without going through television. These are just a few of the more than 50 interviews we, we shared in 2023. We'll provide more in 2024. For Readbeat, this is Steve Tarter. Thanks for listening.